You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back. We are diving back into the flood. So last week we spent some time kind of looking at some uh, Jewish literature as to conversations about the sons of God and the Nephilim and things like that, which is in Genesis 6 in your Bibles. Um, But today we're going to be sticking with uh, more solely where the Bible takes us. We're, We're going to now dive out of the time in which the flood came and actually talk about the flood itself. Now, uh, I read this book this past week and a half or so uh, to prepare for this. It's called The Lost World of the Flood, subtitle Mythology, Theology, and the Deluge Debate. This is written by uh, Trimper Longman III and John H. Walton, both who are well-known Bible scholars. Uh, In fact, this is a great series in general. Uh, It's uh, The Lost World of the blank, blank, blank. Today is the Flood, But Walton has a whole series of these books. Walton is uh, especially known um, for his studies in ancient Near Eastern culture. So what he does is he reads the Bible, he uses his knowledge of what ancient culture was like, and then he's able to, like, give us a deeper glimpse as to what the Bible's saying based on how the world was thinking at the time. It's, It's incredibly helpful to see all the dimensions that the Bible has to offer. Which, by the way, today I'm just in awe. I mean, I was listening through a project, sorry, a podcast called The Bible Project. And even though you know, I've read Genesis a hundred times, I've studied it quite a bit, it's it just constantly, there's more and more elements that I miss. The Bible writers were geniuses, the stuff that they interweave in there. And like my whole day has just been like kind of blown by that. So, you know, we're, we're going to cover a few things, but we're also going to miss a lot of things because there's just so much to, to get to. So today's conversation, uh, we're going to talk about the flood. And for some reason, I'm just going to start off with this, you know, general statement. We still consider this like a controversial conversation, you know, like so much so that Ken Ham uh, some years ago built his own version of the ark. So that people could come and check it out and like be in the Bible story. Given the kind of conversations he has about Genesis, he's probably partially trying to like prove that it makes sense and can happen. I'm guessing uh, to build an ark and things like that. Um, But I just wanna I want to start today's conversation just by saying like whether you believe that there was a worldwide flood in which all of the animals in the world were piled onto this boat, or whether you don't believe it, that's maybe not, like, as controversial of an issue as you would think. And and the book that uh, I was just uh, talking about that we'll be working with today likes to point that out. I mean, you have to understand, there are very crucial components in our Bible that are important for us to understand, you know, like, how is one saved? Who is Jesus? Who is God? And and how does that affect our lives and, and things like that? So there are, of course, stories in our Bible, teachings in our Bible that are crucial because they affect the afterlife. They affect our destiny, what we believe, where we're headed, 
And I just want to point this out before we get too deep into it. Whether you think a worldwide flood happened or whether you think it didn't happen, like that con- conversation doesn't affect your eternal security. <laughs> you know, like, are you going to heaven or not? Are you saved or unsaved? That, that How you take this this story is not so crucial to your faith that it's uh, affecting everything else. So when people get so, like, angry about it and, like, oh, you just don't believe in the Bible, things like that, like, no, you have to understand, this conversation is more complicated than you think. When you try to understand the Bible and how the writers wrote and things like this, like, there's more stuff to take into conversation and uh, you might come to the conclusion that it was real, that it wasn't real, or perhaps a conclusion that it was real but has been um, uh, over-exaggerated or even just uh, misunderstood. So we'll talk a, a little bit about that, but first let's just kind of jump into the story and uh, read it ourselves. So we're going to pick up in Genesis 6, 9, and then before you try to predict what it is that I believe. Let's just start with the story, and then we'll <laughs> we'll get deeper into it. So, Noah and the Flood, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. I just want to pause right there and point that out. Remember, based on at least what the Jews of Jesus' time thought, like, this was a very bad period, and they blamed a lot on supernatural beings. Uh, the Bible itself in Genesis 6 blames a lot on human beings, um, and so when you think of the world being so bad that God has to flood it, and you zoom in on Noah, and you're like, how how, how righteous was he? Well, the Bible just says right here, he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. <laughs> so, if you ever thought that, like, God, you know, only worked with super holy people, well, take a look right there, right right there at the beginning of Noah's introduction. Then there was Noah. He was all right for his generation. Like, you couldn't really hold anything against him compared to everybody else. He was pretty good. So, like, yeah, that, that hope, I hope that's just kind of like a word of encouragement to you and your own problems. Like, man, I, I wish I was better than this. Well, I'm sure Noah wished that too, uh, but God still had a way of working with him. Uh, and we'll see after the flood, some crazy stuff happens with Noah, or at least in Noah's family, to make you wonder again, like, how holy was this guy <laughs> if if these kind of things are happening? Okay, picking back up. Noah walked with God. Now that right there, that uh, takes us back to uh, Enoch, actually. Not the book of Enoch, it takes us to the Bible in Genesis 5.22, when we meet Enoch in Genesis 5.22, says Enoch walked with God. And uh, if we fast forward, we see that Enoch was, uh, Enoch walked with God in verse 24 as well, and he was not, for God took him. So we're almost being set up to think of Enoch right here already. Enoch was this holy guy. Uh, He walked with God so much so that it seemed like he didn't die, rather God just took him to heaven or something, perhaps like he did with Elijah, because that's what happened with Elijah. But uh, here we see the start of a sane conversation. He's blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. So we're almost thinking 
of setting him up in the same light as Enoch. He's a good guy. He's following God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So again, the book of Enoch gets into supernatural beings. Here we have um, Genesis getting into human beings. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the art is 300 cubits. Uh, and that would be uh, approximately, let me just check my math here. Uh, that's uh, 300 cubits, okay? So, uh, sorry, well, yeah, you just I just said that. So the arc is 300 cubits. That's about four, 450 feet, which, by the way, in case you've been to Ken Ham's uh, arc experience in Kentucky, his is actually bigger than the arc. So I'm not sure exactly why that is, but just thought I'd point that out to you. Um, so here you go. You've got uh, this giant ship, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. We're going to come back to this, but I just want to stop there. So 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. For you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive, and take them with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord God commanded him. Okay, so you've got uh, a little bit of a New Eden theme here going on, because in Eden, God makes you know, uh, the birds of the air, the animals, and then the creeping things. And you've got this repeating here. So the world is about to be baptized in water, right? It's about to be wiped clean of its sin. It's about to be redone. And when we come out of this, it's going to be like a new Eden. In fact, God's going to tell Noah to be fruitful and multiply. So it's like starting over fresh. Uh, there are allusions throughout this passage that this is Eden, you know, 2.0. And you're going to see that theme kind of continue throughout the Bible. Um, but I want to talk more about, you know, just the flood in general. What what are we to do with this? Like, did Noah, you know, because he's he and his family are the only ones who are going to survive this, right? So did Noah and his family all together really build this giant boat by themselves? Uh, because 
you know, no one else is probably going to help build a boat when they know that they're all going to die. Uh, and that's, that's another thing that we could hit on right here too. Okay. So like maybe you saw the, uh, follow-up movie to Bruce Almighty, that, uh, Evan Almighty. You ever see that? So in Evan Almighty, it's Steve Carell plays a part of Evan and he gets on a boat. And if I remember right, like the world just thinks he's crazy to some extent. If not Evan Almighty, then I've seen another movie on TV once in which the whole world's like, oh, he's building a boat because God told him to. He's insane. No, look, this is ancient times. People believe in God. They understand who God is. And if you saw this guy building a boat, somehow gathering animals together to protect them or God sending the animals, I don't even know how you go about that. Whatever the case may be, uh, if the world in an ancient Near Eastern society saw that happening, they would want on the boat. They wouldn't be like, ha, ah, Noah's crazy. No, they'd be like, God talked to this guy because they believed, uh, you know, at least the world, they may not have um, known God himself, but they at least knew like, uh, you know, the gods. And even if we look at the culture we just saw in Genesis 6, right, they had a... Uh, the Nephilim, which were supposedly uh, intermixed of the sons of God, which are spiritual beings and human beings. So even if we were to submerse our minds into the time in which the ark came, you know, the sons of God would be like, Noah's building a boat. Oh, man, God, we know God, you know, like we work for God. We're angels. And and here we are seeing Noah build a boat. What's about to happen? God's talking to him. Oh man, judgment's coming. So, uh, you just have to recognize like the world at this time would not be like, Oh, that insane man, Noah, the world would be freaking out a little bit, recognizing that something very legitimate is getting ready to happen here. Okay. Um, but, uh, did he build this giant boat? And if so, like how by himself, you know, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. If the rest of the community is not helping him put this together, how on earth is he pulling this off? Cause this is huge. In fact, it's like, it's especially huge from ancient standards. And this is one of the reasons in which, some interpreters would say, like, this boat is hyperbole. It's an over-exaggeration. Why? Because ancient boats were nowhere near this big. I mean, this thing's like a cruise ship in comparison to everything else you've you've got in ancient times, okay? So, um, for example, let's just kind of take a look at a, a few boats. So, I'm just going to quote here from, from The Lost World of Flood. When we look into shipbuilding throughout history, the earliest vessels, rarely more than 10 feet in length, were made from skin and reeds, and generally sailed in the marshes and along riverbanks. When advancing technology moves beyond boats used for fishing, sailing vessels that could navigate the Mediterranean began to appear. Egyptian art, as early as the Old Kingdom, 2500 BC, depicts ships that may be as long as 170 feet. Ugaritic and Phoenician texts in the 2nd and 1st millennium BC are no longer than this. Even once we move into Roman times in the first couple of centuries AD, the most famous large vessel was the Isis, which sailed between Alexandria and Rome. Remarkably, it was 180 feet by 45 feet by 44 feet, less than a quarter the size 
of the ark. Okay, so just pause right there and understand, like, the ark compared to ancient ships, compared to even, like, the ships of Jesus's time, you know, this thing is ginormous. It's a cruise ship compared to everything else. It's it's huge. And so even when you're thinking from like a technological standpoint of somebody putting together a boat this big in a time where that seems just like impossible, beyond impossible, you know, uh, you got to you got to wonder what you're doing with that. Is it hyperbole? Is it over exaggeration? And that could be because over exaggeration possibly seems to be a theme throughout the book of sorry, throughout the story of the flood. I mean, you got to realize, like, the 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 point the Bible's getting at is the whole world is being made new. It's being redone. We're starting over, Eden 2.0. And therefore, uh, this flood is super, super high. Uh, we see later in Genesis, even the high mountains are covered. Not just covered with water rising to more than 15 cubits. Uh, sorry, I'm quoting here. They were covered and not just covered, quote, but with water rising to more than 15 cubits, that is 23 feet above the mountains. The description truly is that of a worldwide flood, not a local flood. So that's what we see. The Bible is really trying to say, like, even the mountains are covered, everything's covered. It is uh, all underneath the ark. It's the only thing left is this ark. So with that being said... Um, this very easily could be an over-exaggeration. I mean, I'm even trying to think, like, you know, scientifically how well that works out. You know, you see people climb mountains today, and it's very dangerous to be up that high at that altitude. And right, right here, you've got 23 feet above the mountains. Noah's breathing in that kind of dangerous air, that kind of frigidness. And so you, you pause and you just wonder, like, okay, is the Bible more importantly trying to get us to understand the point that God is starting over, starting fresh, more than it's trying to trying to communicate, like, a exactly how this worked down? Because this does feel a little over-exaggerative. But I can see where people would push back, Right. They might push back and and say, well, okay, Jamin, so a boat that big is ginormous. It's unthinkable at the time, but, you know, God could do it. God could find a way to make that happen. Sure, you know, I, I could accept that. Um, I, I just wonder if when you look at the rest of the story, is the exaggeration a theme the Bible writers are using to make its point? Um, but I, I would understand that as like a valid God can make the impossible happen. Yeah, I, I, I follow you on that. But still, if exaggeration is the point in order to tell the themes of the story, then I think that's that's just a fair way of writing. Sometimes we over-exaggerate things to make points. In fact, you know who loves to exaggerate things to make points? Jesus. <laughs> we've, we've even seen this in, in Mark. Like we, we were just talking about it this past week when I made dough on the stage. And I said, you know, Jesus gave this parable in which this woman put some yeast. She hid some yeast inside of not just some flour, but 50 pounds, 50 pounds of flour. Why 50 pounds? Jesus likes to say extreme things sometimes. Like he wants you to get the point. 
all 50 pounds of flour was affected by the leaven, you know? Uh, and this is just a woman baking in her home. You don't bake 50 pounds of, of bread in your home. I don't care how big your party is. That's just crazy. So um, that being said, exaggeration is a biblical theme that is sometimes used to make points. And we get the point, right? I mean, the point is crystal clear. God is doing away with the old creation, bringing in the new creation. He is redoing. It's Eden 2.0. There is sin in the world. It's being baptized away. It's being it's being killed, crushed, wiped out. We are starting fresh, trying to do this all over again. That, by all means, that is crystal clear in the flood narrative. And if that is what the Bible writers really wanted to communicate, more so than uh, factual evidence of 23 feet, you know, even even just thinking of that, was there... Was Moses, Moses, man, what is it with us confusing Noah and Moses? Noah, is Noah out with like a, a yardstick, like just holding it above the mountains, measuring, okay, we're now five feet above the mountains, 20 feet above the mountains. So there's just that kind of question, like, is the exaggeration kind of the point? Now, uh, I'll even say this. Let's say that the world uh, truly was flooded that much, and they actually went uh, above the mountains. Well, here's another thing to wonder. Like, does that mean the whole world was flooded? We would think yes, because that's just so high. Um, But one of the reasons you might push back is because in ancient times, the world was uh, thought of as a very different place. I mean... It was flat land, you know, like way, way back in ancient times, Genesis times, they paint a picture in which there's water and then there's land on top of that water and you could sail out in all directions, but it's just like flat land. The earth is not a planet. It's not a globe. It's not circular in their minds at all at this time. In fact, they picture of what's called a firmament. So there's like this, uh, almost like this ceiling to to the land and that's what the skies are uh there's windows in that ceiling of of the sky and when you open those windows there's water behind uh, this firmament and it begins to pour out like that's what they thought rain was is that the rain was coming through the the windows of the firmament i mean i know even me trying to say this out loud it's like I I struggled to even understand what you're saying, Jamin. Well, that's because the world was physically a different place. They didn't have satellites. They didn't, you know, have any way to to understand that the world was circular. It was a sphere, you know, that it was rotating around the sun, that the moon was just everything. Astronomically, you know, they eventually begin to understand it as the Bible continues into the future. Um, but early on, this was not a picture at all. So think of this, okay? And I don't know how science works out. I'm not even going to try to research it to see if this is a valid point. But we know the world is a sphere. So let's say, let's say that one place, the water actually got 23 feet above the mountains, okay? Even if that was possible, would that mean that the other side of the planet is the same way? Yeah, if, if, you, were, if you were in a flood, and it got that high, you and you thought the whole world was flat, then you'd be like, I look right 
there's just water. I look left, there's just water. I'm above a mountain, therefore I know in my head as a flat lander, everything is covered. It is perfectly covered. Uh, but does that mean as a sphere that is perfectly covered? Because it's not flat, right? We know that today. <laughs> so all that being said, that's just a little more pushback that even if you wanted to come to the idea that this really was a factual global flood and therefore the whole world was flooded, I would just at least push back the idea, hey, Noah really didn't have the knowledge as to how the planet worked at the time. So from from his image, flat land, look everywhere, just water. By all means, you would reach the conclusion the whole world was flooded. But as a sphere, do we have to come to that conclusion? I don't know. I don't know if that would imply that scientifically, nor do I necessarily care to find out because uh, um, I, I don't know that I would come to the conclusion that factually it had to be a global flood. I think the illustration of this story is is very clearly wrote. Um, and I, I will say this too before you, before you uh, hear the wrong thing. I do think the flood happened, okay? So I don't think that this necessarily was like just a made-up flood in order to tell a made-up story. Um, I don't think that. Uh, and part of the reason is because when you look at ancient cultures around the world, there are other people who have stories about an ancient flood that was very, very severe, that made a, a huge impact upon humanity, upon the way of life, upon the earth. We've got stories like that of, of Gilgamesh. Ancient Mesopotamia has these stories of, of a worldwide flood um, and from uh, ancient summer, Babylon, Assyria. These people all have a similar story to that of, of Noah, which means, like, people have this collective memory. Hey, remember that flood that happened that's been passed down to us? We all know the same event, but everybody had a different take on it, okay? So you actually see some overlapping themes between the Bible story and other people's stories. So let's go ahead and and take a look at that. So uh, I'm going to quote again from The Lost World. The general contours of the flood story, as we hear it in the Eridu Genesis, Atrahasis, and the Gilgamesh epic, are very similar. Due to displeasure with humans, the divine realm decides to bring a flood against them to destroy them. In each case, the divine realm chooses one individual to save by warning them of the coming flood and instructing them to build an ark. With the shape of the arcs in various, uh, sorry, while the shape of the ark in various stories differs, remarkably, the floor space of the arcs is nearly identical. After building the ark, the flood hero and others, family, and in some cases even more people, as well as animals, enter the ark. The flood waters rise and finally ebb to the point that the ark comes to rest. The Gilgamesh epic and the biblical account note that the ark settles on a mountain. In these two versions, we also hear that Uda Napishti and Noah let out three birds to determine whether the waters had receded to the point that they could disembark. After stepping off the ark, the flood heroes offer a sacrifice to 
you know, either God or in some of these other stories, the gods, because they they were attributing their saving to to other supernatural beings. Okay, all that being said, my point is people had this collective memory, right? They told it differently, but between all of these different stories, other people had stories that sounded like the Genesis account of a flood. Now, we don't know which one came first, right? We don't know if it's like Gilgamesh was, that the Bible was trying to retell the epic of Gilgamesh with its own twist, or we don't know if Gilgamesh is retelling the Bible with its own twist. But what we do know is that our Bible is divinely inspired, that God is trying to communicate his points and and make it clear to us. So, well, think of it this way. When, When things happen today, have you ever noticed, like, people are always very quick to say, okay, so this disaster that happened in this part of the world, here's what God's saying. This is why it's judgment on you. Well, okay, as uncomfortable as we are with that sometimes, and I don't I don't know if I've ever trusted anyone modern who's <laughs> given the reasons as to why things have happened, um, but in, in ancient times, here you have this flood happened, and... Uh, the Bible is giving a commentary as to why. Hey, everyone, you know that flood? It's in our collective memory. We've had it passed down through many different generations, and uh, um, we've all got different stories of it. The Bible's like, here's the one that that you need to understand. Why was there a flood in the first place? Well, there was sin, great sin, uh, on the spiritual sides of life, on physical sides of life, And the only person who survived it was a man who wasn't so sinful, but blameless for his time, righteous. And why did he survive it? Because he was walking with God. And so all of um, the animals and all of uh, this man's, in his righteousness, the rest of his family, they all get on a boat and God saved them to start over, going all the way back to what we understand of Eden. That's happening all over again. And so the Bible begins to tell us, like, this is the commentary as to why there was a flood. This is why God brought the flood. This is Um, You might even say, like, regardless of what the other ones say, those stories are wrong. God's story is the right story. So get invested in the themes that's being communicated in the divinely inspired book that we call the Bible. All right. So all that being said, I'm hoping that's, uh, that's helpful so far just to understand, like, everybody knew about this flood. People had different ways to tell it. But the Bible has the the right way to tell it, and it's communicating the themes that that we need to understand. So all that being said, you've heard me say quite a few things today, and you're like, oh, Jamin doesn't believe in a flood. And I'm saying, no, that's not true. I do believe in a flood, and I think that ancient evidence shows us that enough cultures had this memory of a flood that it truly was real, and that it was to wipe everything out and start over and fresh. The themes are clear. Did it have to be global? Did it have to be worldwide? I would say that probably is a fair assumption from from uh, Walton and Temperman that that might be an over-exaggeration for the sake of making a theological point. Okay, um, the other reason we may not go for a worldwide flood is simply because science doesn't necessarily uh, 
Um, it, it doesn't suggest it. So uh, you've maybe heard it said over time, like, oh, this new discovery has been found of an ark, or this new discovery has been found giving proof to a worldwide flood. And there might be bits and pieces here that have some legitimate evidence. Um, but for the most part, we do not, from a scientific standpoint, have any clear evidence that the entire world has been shaped by a flood that came in and, and did things. Okay, so I'm repeating myself a lot, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, before we do, let's just uh, swing back a month or two in podcast episodes here. So I had Kevin Eccles, who is a pastor in our conference and a scientist, um, and we got him on the podcast to talk about evolution. And if you remember that episode, I started it off saying, like, you know, I really don't have a problem with what anyone believes on this. Like, I may think that God made us by the means of evolution and that the creation story of Genesis is a uh, way of of showing us, like, there is only one God who made everything and, uh, you know, the themes are what are important throughout Genesis, not necessarily like being created literally in, in the six days. Um, but uh, I don't have a problem if anyone believes that we were created in six days, nor do I have a problem if anyone believes if God created us in, in by a different means like that of evolution. Like It's all God who's creating, right? In the same way, if you want to see the the flood of Genesis to be a worldwide flood that was 23 feet above the mountains, I don't have a problem with that. It doesn't bother me. Likewise, if you think that it was just a, a flood that uh, was massive in size, but maybe not, uh, um, it was massive enough for many ancient cultures to have the memory of it or the story passed down of it, rewritten in different ways, uh, but uh, you didn't uh, necessarily believe that it was 23 feet above the mountains or the entire globe, since the science doesn't evidence it. I don't think that's a problem either. As long as we all come away with the themes of what these stories are trying to communicate, then I think we're understanding what God himself is is wanting us to understand from these passages. So there's just that. Uh, why am I okay with you falling on either side of that conversation. Again, as we started this podcast, you know, you're not like saved or unsaved depending on your discretion as to if this is a uh, over-exaggeration or a factual event. The flood, what you think about that, is not going to keep you out of heaven or get you into heaven, okay? So this is one of those conversations that I just think it's weird how much we still fight about it today. Um, and I think that uh, we need to pay more attention to what the Bible writers are are really wanting to communicate to us. So with all that being said, I hope it's helpful, helpful for you. Um, and uh, yeah, do what you want with that knowledge and uh, check out uh, The Lost World of the Flood for yourselves if you want to learn more about it. So with that being said, we will uh, continue with a little bit of the flood narrative and kind of like moving through the whole thing until we get off the ark. There's a lot of weird stories coming up, including some of the things that happen when we leave the ark. So we'll get there soon. And that uh, is our journey for now.